Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufak, Chief Economist for the Africa region at the World Bank. Despite having a head start in preparing for COVID-19 pandemic, health systems in most African countries are not equipped to deal with a crisis of this magnitude on their own. We have seen this in countries across the world and have learned that acting quickly can save lives and protect economies. As the pandemic hit, countries that were slow to act experienced significant loss of lives and immense pressures on their health system, even those that are high income. Many African countries lack economic resources to adequately respond and to protect people and livelihoods. My guest today is Dr. John Kengaso, the Director of Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDCs. John Kengason has called this pandemic a looming disaster for Af the African continent. And his organization, the CDCs, has been at the forefront of limiting the health impacts of COVID-19 on African countries. They are coordinating country efforts, sourcing medical equipment, and providing guidelines on how countries can implement social distancing measures and many other efforts. This would be an enormous mandate anywhere, but it's complicated by Africa's specific challenges, including difficulties in enforcing social distancing in urban slums, for example, the dynamics of countries in fragile and conflict situation, and insufficient testing kits, to name a few. Welcome, Dr. Kengason, and thank you for joining me today to share more about how the Africa CDC is helping African countries fight COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to have this dialogue with you. So, John, can you tell us, and, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, what is the Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and how and when did your organization come into being? No, thank you. The, the Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as you rightly indicated, uh, was officially launched on January 31st, 2017. And if you recall, we had just emerged from the West Africa Ebola uh, uh, outbreak disaster, which uh, costed uh, 11,000 lives in Africa, and almost 21,000 people were in infected. I think we have to um, always remember that in every crisis, there's silver lining. And the, the concept of CDCs have always emerged from crisis. If you or if you recall, the, um, the U.S. CDC, for example, was established around 1947, just after uh, the uh, Second World War, and there was a big malaria uh, uh, outbreak in in the U.S. And um, the U.S. CDC was established, and it, it has gone on the record as uh, the only institution that the African Union conceived uh, launched. Uh, within two or three years, because it was actually conceived about uh, in 2015 at the sideline of the head of state summit in 
Equatorial Guinea at the heart of the, the Ebola crisis and then launched uh, in two, two years later. So I think that is um, what uh, the Africa CDC is. The, the origin of this is also clear that the, the head of state saw, uh, the, they had the wisdom of looking at the rapidly expanding population of the continent uh, when uh, public health structures like the World Health Organization uh, were established in 1947, the population of the entire continent of Africa, that is from Cairo to Cape Town, uh, from Dakar to uh, Mogadishu in, in, in Senegal, was 285 million inhabitants. Today we are 1.2 1.3 billion people are uh, still using the same uh, uh, um, surface area. Uh, secondly, uh, this huge uh, uh, explosion of uh, population has led to uh, a, a lot of cities that have uh, uh, emerged with a lot of slums. And, uh, and, and thirdly, there's climate change and multiple diseases are emerging. When the World Health Organization was established in 1947, there was not HIV-AIDS. And today, I mean, one of the greatest pandemic of our time uh, besides the current COVID-19 has been HIV-AIDS. So I think these are the factors that guided the wisdom and vision of the head of state to establish Africa CDC in, in 2017. Because this is actually quite amazing uh, that CDC is only three years you know, of life. Uh, yet has been already uh, achieving so much and we'll talk certainly more about it. Today, we all have the COVID-19 global pandemic on our minds and there couldn't be a better institution like CDC's to help Africa really address this crisis. So basic uh, question to you, John, what is the health situation on the continent? How is COVID affecting the continent on the health side? Thank you, Abed. COVID is shaping the continent in an unprecedented manner in the health side. I think it is fair to say that COVID is already created a tremendous disruption in our, in our health systems than previously thought. We should always remember that when these kind of outbreaks occur, many people die from COVID and not necessarily due to COVID, which means because of the impact it has on the non-COVID services, uh, so many people uh, will suffer and will die. Personally, my greatest fear as an individual is to fall sick in here in Addis Ababa and I go to a hospital because I know that, I mean, I would not be so sure what I'm going to get. So I think you can extrapolate that. And that would be true for all African countries or actually non-African countries, by the way. Let me just focus in Africa because our systems are extremely fragile. So I think COVID is an eye-opener that it has further exposed the inequities that exist on the continent, especially the lack of investment in health systems. Just before COVID, I think when we launched Africa CDC, one of my mantra has been that Building health systems was truly an investment and not a cost. And uh, very unfortunately, COVID has now come to expose that. You actually build health systems before you need them. You don't build them when you need them because it's too late. It's like uh, trying to drill a well when you are thirsty. By the time you drill and find water, you'll be dead. It'll be too late. So I think it's a really an eye-opener for the continent. And um, as we speak, 66,000 Africans have been infected as of today with uh, about 2,300 deaths. If you look at that and you say, ah, it looks like the continent has been spared of this uh, pandemic, uh, that uh, maybe the worst is over. No, I think my message to the continent is, which I deliberately make sure that 
I insist on that, is that we just have a delayed pandemic. So we should be very, very careful because uh, the worst is still to come on the continent for several reasons. You highlighted that we live in, in very tight environments. So cultural context is very different. Addis Ababa is a city of more than 10 million inhabitants and people live really in crowded areas there. So in as much as our young population could be a factor, that helps us. But the fact that we live in really congested uh, settings there and family settings there doesn't uh, speak well of us. We have many other diseases out there, i.e. TB, malaria, HIV, and others. And those are all uh, conditions that would not favor us. Now, the question is, are we testing enough? I think definitely the answer is no, we are not. As of today, we've tested less than uh, 1 million people on the continent of 1.2 to 1.3 billion. Uh, people. So which is extremely limited testing. I think uh, that much would not enable us to know the, the full size of this pandemic. I keep reminding the media each time I brief them that if you don't test, you don't find. And if you test, you find. That's correct. Hey John, you could say the same for the US or Europe. You know, people would push back in Africa saying, well, no country actually has enough tests. So what do you say about that? Yeah, but no country has enough, but you at least you are able to speed up and scale up your testing uh, to a certain level. But our situation is almost like you are not testing. Mm-hmm. It took us several months for countries like South Africa to even uh, be able to reach 100,000 tests in a population of about 60-something million people, So, which is extremely uh, limited. But there are lessons, uh, Albert, that we are learning from this, that the continent has been over dependent on manufacturing of diagnostics from non-African countries. And that is lesson number one, that you do not mortgage your security, your diagnostic security to outside. The equivalent of that will be like having a fire in your house and then hoping that your neighbor who also has fire in his or her place will come over and take care of you. I think that is not just going to be a natural process. So I guess that's a lesson we all are learning from this crisis, right? Yes. A big lesson for Africa is that you have to manufacture your own three things. You have to manufacture uh, and manufacture quickly. Or have the ability to manufacture quickly is diagnostics, treatment, and vaccines. Without those three components, no matter what you do, it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, don't. the point you're raising is so important, John, because we're already hearing in some quarters in Africa that COVID is over because some governments have just decided to reopen all activities and emphasizing that we are just delayed is important. And the other point you mentioned, uh, where I probably want you to elaborate a little bit more on, is the uh, non-COVID-related death during this period. And I believe in some countries, we're already seeing an increase in death that are not related to COVID. Can you elaborate on where would this come from? Yeah, I mean, if you look at our continent, so let's take COVID off the table. I think we have lived with COVID uh, since January, which is about four months uh, since. uh, But I already feel like we've lived with it uh, for for four years because of the intensity of of the engagement. Is that? Yeah, it's really, I mean, I can't imagine that this virus is, has been with us only for four months and we are so exhausted with it. And so uh, the key thing is that, I mean, if you take COVID off the table, uh, there are three diseases that, mega diseases that kill almost 1.2 million Africans a year. That is, if you combine uh, deaths from 1.2 million, I mean, if you combine deaths from malaria, deaths from TB and deaths from HIV, 
they all collectively will account for um, over 1.2 million deaths a year. Now, uh, those services are being completely paralyzed as we speak now. There are studies out there that are saying, look, if this continues for the next six months in Africa, there will be an excess 500,000 uh, 500, deaths from, uh, from HIV alone. Okay, so if you add the already uh, the normal time, what I would call normal time deaths from um, from HIV to the excess mortality because of, of uh, the COVID uh, 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 in, in involvement in this equation, it gives you very quickly an additional five hundred thousand there. So that is that is not good. I think um, uh, we were struggling uh, before, and it will even be a, a big challenge going forward there. So I think that is where, they, I mean, they, they, some of the, the non-COVID related, and we as Africa CDC are, are advocating as part of our strategy, we call it um, a limiting harm, which is uh, the harm to the economy, harm to non-COVID uh, uh, related infections, and immunizations. I mean, we have some of the most challenging maternal childhood uh, numbers on the continent, as you know, and some of those will even just aggravate that because of the COVID uh, uh, Affections. So, John, our continent, um, you know, is is clearly uh, quite different from uh, uh, you know Europe and, and and the US when it comes to uh, uh, our economic structures. Uh, we mention uh, slums in urban areas, but but the other most important uh, distinctive uh, future is informality. Um, how easy has it been from your end to uh, advise countries on social distancing with populations that live on, uh, you know, hand to mouth on a daily day, daily basis and populations that actually depend on interaction with large number of people to earn their living? How easy has it been from the CDC perspective to help countries tailoring uh, advice on, on social distancing and confinement? Yeah, I think the, the centrality of that question is balancing between uh, saving lives and saving livelihoods. And that is the balance that we have to play very carefully. Very early on, when the continent started being challenged with the introduction of COVID-19, we issued guidelines on a step-by-step approach to locking down and making sure that you implement the social uh, distancing standard textbook methods for public health that have been out there for more than 100 years. Clearly, the same principles that apply to public health in the West should apply in Africa, but public health and response is local. We always have to do, take those concepts that are universal and, and contextualize it and localize it. And the answer to that in Africa that we are preaching and pushing forward is that it has to be a community-owned and community-led response, which means we actually bring those concepts and, and square them to the reality of our own communities, which means you create champions, you communicate directly in a way that they will understand what, what it is that you're dealing with. Because, I mean, we're dealing with a vast number of uh, citizenship which are not fully conversant with truly what is going on. And they have been intoxicated by false information, fake information, and inaccurate information. So what we have been doing is really to work with grassroots media to, to make sure that they penetrate the community and spread the right information. And because we are not seeing this, and because people are not dying of it, the virus is still circulating and it would, it would be very, very harmful 
to, to, to that. Now, you can already see that there's been tension across Africa in Nigeria, uh, South Africa, and many other countries because of the tension between uh, balancing between livelihoods and saving lives. So I think that is the, that question is very pertinent. And unless and until we engage the community, like the HIV community did to energize the response, especially in South Africa, will continue to be a, a challenge. And I want to be very clear that this is we are in for a very long haul uh, for COVID-19 in Africa. I think this is not going to go away <laughs> by June or July. I think we, we should prepare for a marathon, not a spring. But John, how do you square that with the decision of African governments to basically align to uh, the calendar of reopening in Europe and the U.S. as it comes? How do you square that information with African economies reopening while you are basically suggesting that we are not even yet at the tip of the pandemic in Africa? That's a very good question. I mean, as a continent... We've organized a coordination response into three layers, the, the Bureau of the Head of States. Then there are three coordinating committees, one consisting of ministers of finance, then ministers of transport and ministers of health. Then underneath that uh, is the, the task force, that, which I coach here, which report both to all three uh, ministerial committees and then to the Bureau of, of the Head of State. The importance of this is that the five RECs, the regional economic blocks, are all connected in this. And one thing we, we, are, we are working on aggressively, and we hope to issue this next week, is guidelines on how to ease the economy. The reason that it's taking us long is really to be sure that we have a consultative process with the five RECs, regional economic blocks, so that when we issue it, the people get the ownership of it, the document, and then they feel that they, they let the process and they can use that. So the point you are raising is extremely important. Now, you cannot, as a country, say in East Africa, let's take Kenya, suddenly just uh, open up your airport and then open up your, your systems then what happens if your plane cannot fly from Nairobi to Addis Ababa or to Kigali or Dar es Salaam, then it makes no point opening up that airport for, for a plane that would not go anywhere except maybe a domestic flight. So the coordinated approach is what we are preaching and pushing that the five regional centers should really work in a, a harmonized way. I'm very pleased to note that the head of states of the East African Economic Bloc just met and issued a statement today. Uh, which goes in that direction. I'm very pleased that just three weeks ago, uh, the ECOWAX, the West African head of states met and we're considering the same thing. So just in sum is a coordinated messaging strategy and advocacy is highly required for us to uh, to unlock ourselves in a safe and coordinated manner. Yes, John, but uh, you, know, uh, you mentioned East Africa, West Africa. Do you see this across Africa? Because uh, we're, we're hearing... Uh, different kind of measures in terms of uh, reopening in some countries, you know, uh, uh, the first thing to open are, um, you know, uh, bars or, uh, you know, big gathering places. Do you see that actually, uh, that coordinated approach uh, being applied across Africa? And I agree with you, it would be absolutely critical. That is what we, we are encouraging uh, uh, countries and the regions to coordinate the approach. Now, if you go to individual country levels, and the, the, the behavior is very different. I mean, some countries uh, lock, close, uh, shut down uh, the systems, and then suddenly open it up uh, abruptly. That would not be. That is not what we are recommending in our, our guidance. We are recommending that 
you take a, st a stage approach to, to doing that. Now, we cannot replace countries, but we are cautioning strongly and repeatedly that uh, COVID is a dangerous virus, it's a treacherous virus, and it spreads extremely quickly. So if you open up those bars and, uh, uh, and open up mass gatherings that you put in, then the, all the investments that you did in closing down the economies for four weeks or more are wasted because it was just, and we are seeing it. We, uh, we saw what, what is happening in, in Ghana where they open up and they are now over in more than uh, close to 5,000 cases in, 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 in Ghana. And when they shut the, the economy, it was, uh, or shut down their system, they, they, were, they had less than 200 cases there. So I think it's evident. We don't need to go far to see uh, uh, that evidence there. So, our advice to countries is to use the guidelines that we uh, are, are producing uh, to safely unlock the economies. Okay, so John, can we can we turn that around and and hear from you a couple of things that countries should not do as they try to reopen? Let's start with the things that countries should do. Then we can do we do with countries what they should not do. I think the first thing that that should do is expand your testing so that you know where the virus is seeding, you know how it's propagating, and you also know measures to implement, continue to isolate people that are infected or quarantine them, and then, of course, do the contact tracing there. That is it. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a cure or treatment. So the only thing we left now is the non-pharmaceutical measures. So I think that is very, very important. Secondly, or thirdly, is that you would have trained your health system or facilities such that they can truly manage cases because it's not a question of if there will be people seeking care. It's a question of how many. So you have provisions for that. That way you can identify people, take those who need to be treated uh, to the appropriate centers and, and treat them. And that way you create confidence in the system. I think that is the word I'm looking for. Such that when people feel sick, they know that they can go somewhere and, and seek proper care and not be treated in a manner that does not meet human rights requirements. So those are the kind of things that we must do. Then lastly is you unlock in a stage manner. There are certain things that you cannot unlock very easily, like bars allow for large funeral celebrations, mass gatherings, I think, like celebrating national days. This is not a time to do that. You just uh, put your country in extreme difficult and challenging conditions. Those are the things that we must do. The things that we cannot do. I mean, I touched on some of those, like do not organize political elections where they require mass gatherings. Do not bother about opening up bars, that uh, dancing parlors that people go large numbers. Secondly, make sure that you promote local production of even cloth masks so that people can wear them if they feel like they're in a congested market environment. Uh, they have to put on some cloth masks, not surgical masks, just locally made masks. We know how this virus is transmitted. It's, it's a droplet infection. So it means at least the mass that you produce locally can shade you as, as much as possible. I think that much they have to do. I think that also countries should avoid the mass transportation. It should be discouraged because you just help to propagate and, and prolong the crisis there. So in my views, those are the, the don'ts and the do's that the countries should look at. Yes, yes, great. John, I think that's quite useful. Now, I want to touch on one important aspect of this discussion on COVID, which are all the um, innovations that we are seeing coming out of the continent and uh, African solutions. We've seen uh, efforts of 
the testing being ramped up in Ghana, in Senegal, Madagascar coming up with some attempts to cure. What is CDC's take on all the innovation that is taking place? We, as the continent's public health agency for the African Union, is extremely supportive of all uh, innovations on the continent. We actually have a working group underneath the task force, which is called the African Task Force for Coronavirus Preparedness and Response, a group called, uh, as I said, Research and Innovation. And we are looking at four things as, as we speak. One is we are promoting young people that are coming out with all kinds of apps that they want to support us to do contact tracing. And we're saying, great, instead of me getting a device that somebody has produced somewhere in Europe or the United States, yes, it's been probably tested. But then if a young student somewhere says they want to uh, do that with us, great, give it a chance. And you, you pilot it, support them to pilot it. And we'll know that way, you're encouraging innovation and contributing to, to innovation that will contribute to these uh, efforts. I think that is one. Second is the area of diagnostics. We have four countries that are, um, have embarked on producing their own diagnostics, uh, South Africa, Kenya, Senegal, and Morocco. Just today, I was facilitating a group in Morocco to produce PCR-based tests that they will ship to Senegal for Senegal to do an independent evaluation under our watch on and supervision of the Africa CDC. And then when Senegal produce their own test, we will now coordinate it and let other institutions do the evaluation. And then we broke the results and then we can issue our own position and, and say, look, these tests are made in Africa and Africa CDC stands behind the test there. And South Africa... I think I mentioned uh, there's uh, Kenya, South Africa, Morocco, and 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 um, and, Ke- and sorry, and uh, Senegal. So that is the second set of innovation in the area of diagnostics. The third area of innovation that we are seeing is that countries are really repurposing and trying to produce uh, PPEs like masks. And we have a group working with NEPAD on standby to look at the quality of that and standards of that. So I think this, this is just some examples that have emerged over the last four months that we believe are extremely valuable uh, 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 for the short-term requirements and needs and have the potential, of course, to be a game-changer once COVID is over. Now, the issue of, of vaccine trials or clinical trials as a whole, there are currently 25 clinical trials on the continent, which means these are registered. And we are tracking those. A lot of these uh, trials are beginning to happen in, in Egypt. Are these for all for COVID? All for COVID. All for COVID. 25. 25 registered clinical trials. That is a combination of chloroquine and, and that and some new drugs and all kinds of a combination of drugs, which means they've gone through a proper ethical clearance process, which means they've gone through a proper scientific process and for validity and to check the soundness of the concept behind it. And then they have been properly designed, which means you have a scientific monitoring board and you are uh, tracking people that are enrolled in a systematic way, looking for side effects and also looking for endpoints. So that is a huge contribution, at least. And, and it's not a terribly large number compared to the numbers going around the world, but that is a large number for a continent of Africa. Now, with respect to Madagascar, we had a conversation with the president of Madagascar where he presented the bureau's meeting chaired by President Ramaphosa. And we've been following up with their embassy here, and we just got a reply today from the foreign ministry saying look, they are fully ready to cooperate with Africa CDC to understand what it is, and then secondly, to understand the data, and then thirdly, 
to uh, join forces and expand clinical trials if we feel that the data is not uh, strong enough to make a recommendation. So I think I see an open-mindedness there from the side of the government of Madagascar, and we too are very looking forward to working with them to either understand what is going on with respect to two things, safety, data on safety, and data on efficiency of the, or efficacy of the drug. Yeah, open-mindedness is clearly the word there, uh, John, because no country has a solution to this terrible pandemic, unprecedented. So yeah, let's make sure we test and come to a scientific conclusion on the efficacy of those innovations. We're seeing some countries actually uh, leveraging 3D printing for uh, ventilators, and uh, countries like Ethiopia are actually leveraging their manufacturing base to start producing PPE and now starting to actually export outside of Africa. And I believe that's clearly one area where the African Union should be uh, you know, leveraging the Africa continental free trade area to uh, boost those intra-Africa trade volumes. So yeah, there, there's certainly lot of innovation happening there. And that leads me to my last question, John, on the silver lining out of this whole crisis. You know, Africa has been there before, probably not facing a crisis of this magnitude, but we've gone through so so much. And the latest episode was just Ebola. Have we learned lessons of those? Are we actually applying those lessons? What do you see as silver lining out of this COVID-19 crisis? Thank you, Abel. I see uh, several silver linings out of this. I believe, first of all, that at a much higher level, that the whole dialogue and discussion about strengthening health systems in a committed and deliberate manner will cease from being just a conversation and dialogue to a reality. Now, if that doesn't happen on the continent, then I don't know what else can uh, could should trigger that discussion. We've seen the devastating economic impact of this on the continent. So I think the silver lining here is that, I'm hoping, is that uh, this will push all countries in Africa to say, look, we are going to go home and develop our own national public health institutions as an instrument of security, similar to having your Marines or the terrorist army that protect the country. Without a functional national public health institute across all member states will struggle and continue to be challenged. And it would look like this didn't really happen. I think that is one. The second thing that silver lining that I'm seeing here is that the need for local manufacturing. The time has come where Africa has to ride on the back of that continental free trade agreement that you, you touched on. And I was very pleased that the newly selected executive secretary of that, and I had a wonderful discussion about how to embed public health into the overall strategy. I think I'm very pleased with that. So that has to happen. We have to have that local manufacturing ability on the continent across three areas that are indicated, diagnostics, vaccines, and drugs. We import 99% of our drugs. You know that. So if today there's a vaccine... That's incredible. Yeah. If today there's a vaccine at Abel and at Africa, will be a continent of 1.3 billion, will be scrambling for those vaccines versus in a world where we are 7.8 billion. The context of what is happening is huge because previously you could say, well, you have an Ebola vaccine and you use it only in the areas where Ebola occurs and whatever. 
the whole world will be scrambling for any vaccine that is produced. I mean, I will be the first one to run to the corner pharmacy to get my vaccine or the hospital. So two will be 7.8 billion people in the world. So that is a, 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 but Africa has to say, well, if the Pasteur Institute in Senegal is manufacturing yellow fever vaccines and have been doing that for years, it means they can manufacture vaccines for other things there. So be very deliberate in supporting such institutions to manufacture that. The last thing that the continent, a lesson they've learned, we, we are applying now is that the Ebola crisis taught us how to uh, engage the community, how to mobilize the community, and then how to conduct research uh, in the context of outbreaks. You remember that the Ebola outbreak in West Africa was brought to an end uh, only when we had an effective, effective vaccine, and it was that is a vaccine that was tested during the outbreak and led by, by, by Africans in West Africa. So that, that ability exists to, to conduct clinical trials, and I think that is what will facilitate us to do clinical trials for vaccines and drugs on the continent. Engagement with the community. The current Ebola outbreak in DRC, uh, only, we only made a turn on it when uh, Professor Muyembe and others began to engage the community. Now we know how to engage the community. Those are lessons that we need to apply uh, to COVID, uh, to a COVID response. Contact tracing in, in, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, that was the key in, or one of the factors that helped us to turn the ties against Ebola in West Africa. Those countries are doing extremely well in contact tracing efforts and using the community workers. I mean, and a call to action that we, Africa CDC, are pushing on the need, our initiative called PAC. That is the partnership to accelerate COVID testing. And that is, uh, uh, those are all lessons that we learned from um, the responding to multiple outbreaks and especially the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So I think, um, uh, 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 then lastly, Africa CDC itself has actually work, learned how to work very closely uh, with the highest level of leadership on the continent. I think uh, we are learning as a new organization. We are just two, uh, three, three and a half years old, but this crisis has actually brought us closer between the technic- as, uh, as a technical agency of the continent, public health agency, and the political leadership of, of the continent. I think that is a clear silver lining to the extent that uh, countries started independently pledging for additional funding to, to Africa CDC. The African Development Bank has pledged $26 million to strengthen Africa CDC. The president of uh, South Africa has pledged $2 million. President of uh, Kenya, uh, 1 million, Egypt, 2 million, many others, uh, Mali, Senegal, and, and all happening during this crisis. That just points you to the fact that uh, 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 what this, the, the, when you talk of a crystal, a crystal clear example of a silver lining, that to me is one of the biggest lessons that we've learned from this. No, that's wonderful news, John. And frankly, congratulations for making that happen. Just in three years, establishing the relevance and the uh, importance of your institutions, it's clear you have done it. Here are three things I'm taking away from this great conversation. One, COVID-19 is not over in Africa. We had a late start and the worst may still be to come. So let's please continue to be prudent. This disease is extremely dangerous. Second, as countries try to reopen the economies, we need to be smart about it. We need to make sure we do not reopen with activities that include masses, and we should keep 
social distancing. We should promote local production of masks and equipment that can prevent uh, contagion. Third, Africa needs to really learn from this crisis uh, that local production of vaccines, of drugs, and test equipment would be extremely helpful moving forward. And this would extend to the uh, non-health sector as well. And building on the African continental free trade to boost trade across African countries can be one of the saving grace moving forward. John, it's been wonderful talking to you. Any last word to our listeners? It's truly been a pleasure speaking with you. And COVID-19 will require a global solidarity to find a global solution, including Africa. And Africa must be factored into the equation to fight COVID-19 globally. I always say that, I mean, the war against COVID-19, or rather the victory against COVID-19 will be celebrated worldwide, but the victories will be local. Thank you very much, John. And thank you for being here and sharing your views and for the work you are doing to help the African countries help fight COVID-19. As a reminder to our listeners, you can find all of our recent publications at worldbank.org slash AFRCE. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufak to share your views, questions, and ideas. Until next time, thank you for listening and stay well.